you very much indeed to all the readers. Let's pray. Psalm 46, again, God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Lord, we pray that you yourself would fortify our hearts this morning and strengthen our faith. Uh, please um, speak to us in these words and um, would you minister to us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may not have heard about him yet, but Carlos Alcaraz is about to become the next star of men's tennis. Um, the 19-year-old was once branded a piece of spaghetti uh, because he looked so scrawny. Yet just over a week ago at the Madrid Open, he defeated both Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic on the way to the title. He's the youngest champion in three of the four tournaments that he's won this year, um, as in, in history. Um, and Alexander Zurev, the beaten finalist in world number three, said that he's already the best player in the world. Nadal said that he will have an unstoppable career. If you're a tennis fan, I highly recommend watching him in the French Open, which begins today at Roland Garros. He may well supplant Nadal as the next king of clay. Well, Alcaraz has burst onto the scene from relative obscurity. The piece of spaghetti will soon become a household name. And that fast rise to stardom is a bit like what David enjoyed in this passage. We all know the name King David, the great king of Israel. But at this point in the story, he's still in the background. He's still obscure. Saul was the name that everyone knew. Yet the events of this passage very much show how David is the true king in waiting. If you were here last week, you may remember from 1 Samuel 16 how David was anointed by Samuel as the next king, yet that didn't mean that he ascended to the throne immediately. A lot will happen in between. The path in between David's anointing and taking his seat on the throne would be marked by great trial and suffering. All of it will serve to prove his worth and shape his reign as king. But 1 Samuel 17 marks the first test. The chapter is presented as a battle between David and Goliath, and it is. Uh, it's one of those uh, famous fights, you know, like rumble in the jumble. We all know the story of David and Goliath. But there's another, even greater dimension to this conflict. And it's that between David and Saul. You see, Goliath is simply the challenge that reveals the contrast between those two kings, David and Saul. And so to help us navigate this very long chapter, I've broken the story down into four parts. The challenge, the contenders, the champion, and the conquest. But please hear this. A sermon should not only be story time. Uh, something for us to sit back and listen to. It's not simply something to observe from a distance like we might watch Carlos Alcaraz at the French Open this week. This story is part of an even greater story, one in which we're all a part of. 
These may well be familiar words to us, but they're also living words that impact upon us. They're living words given to confront us and to change us and to cause us to consider our connection to all the primary characters. So with all that in mind, let's enter in to hear what God is saying to us today. So first, the challenge. If you're taking notes, we're not going to read the whole text again. This is 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 to 11. At the beginning of the chapter, the battle lines are drawn. The Philistines have gathered for war against the Israelites, and their armies are standing on opposite hills facing each other, and it's the Philistines who make the first move. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. It's almost like an announcement or um, an entrance to a a boxing match. Standing at three meters tall, wearing 57 kilos of armor and carrying a spear weighing seven kilos. He's big, he's bad, he's the walking fortress, the undefeated and undisputed champion of the Philistine. It's Goliath! And all the Philistines are... You can imagine their shouts and cheers as Goliath enters the arena, taunting the Philistines, a bit like Tyson Fury. Come on, choose your champion. Who's going to fight me? Well, that challenge is thrown down for 40 days straight, morning and evening. Goliath was a constant menace to Israel's increasingly fearful army. Verse 10, the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Understandably, Goliath must have been a a hugely monstrous and intimidating sight. It's no wonder that biblical interpreters throughout the history of the church have seen Goliath as a representative of Satan. The monster, scripture Uh, Scripturally, Satan is the most fearsome and imposing enemy of God's people who seeks to terrify and deceive and lie and take captive those who belong to the Lord. It wasn't all that long ago that we were studying 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, uh, Peter says that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's the champion of the evil forces, hostile to Christ and his church, a seemingly unconquerable force. Who can stand against him? Well, back in 1 Samuel 17, there are two viable contenders to take on Goliath. This is uh, verses 12 to 40, highlighted by the the narrator. And the first contender is Saul. Now, Saul could have gone forward to face Goliath, He was, after all, the warrior king chosen by the people. And the description of his physical appearance isn't far off that of Goliath. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we hear how Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. He's presented as a champion fighter, and yet this large warrior king is afraid. He's reluctant to enter the ring. Why? 
Well, as we've seen all along, Saul puts his confidence in military might, those things that you can see. And when someone simply bigger than him, when the challenge is greater than he can bear, he cowers away. Even when David uh, comes forward, Saul can't imagine David taking on Goliath without armor, and so he loads him up with his own stuff. It's almost comical. But I wonder, are there ways that we sometimes share in that same mentality as Saul? You know, when my life, for instance, gets messy and I'm afraid or, or, or worried, I tend to go into organi- organizational overdrive. Um, so if you ever see me clearing stuff out at the tip or buying loads of clear plastic boxes from the range, feel free to ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> I, I, you know, I might just be preparing for our forthcoming move, but I might be turning to organization as a way of gaining control when life just seems so messy, when it feels a bit too much, where do you turn? Where do we tend to turn as a church in difficult seasons? Where is fear getting the better of faith in our church? What do we fall back on when things are difficult? What's our equivalent of Saul's armor? Our programs and strategies, a surplus in the accounts, slick services, inspiring preaching, the strength of our relationships and our grow groups. Obviously, none of those things are bad, quite the opposite. But if we expect those things in themselves to stand against the most hostile challenges, we will be disappointed and we will crumble. The other contender is David. David didn't even come as a warrior. The only reason he's there is because he's making deliveries to the front line. They didn't have Amazon Prime back then. He's young and he's inexperienced. He worked as a shepherd, not a soldier like three of his brothers. By the way, that doesn't mean that he's incapable of fighting. He'd previously taken on lions and, and bears. But what really distinguishes David from Saul is where he puts his faith. Up until this point, David has never spoken in the story. Also up until this point, I wonder what else uh, you've noticed is missing. Look at David's words in verse 26. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Did you notice that this is the first time in the narrative that someone mentions God? David identifies the real problem with Goliath, not his super strength. Rather, it's Goliath's defiance of God. And so David brings in a whole new worldview. Instead of looking at appearances, he effectively says, doesn't having the living God on our side make a difference? Who can possibly defy the Lord? Not Goliath, not anyone. To put it another way, David's theology, his knowledge and understanding, and his relationship with God fortifies him. 
against fear. And incidentally, that's why theology is not a side interest in the Christian life. Theology isn't study for study's sake. True theology, the study of God and his works, fortifies our faith in the face of fear. It gives us confidence in God's might. He is stronger than any tools of war. It gives us confidence in God's covenant promises. He is committed to his his people, and he fights for them. Theology helps us to answer the question, what difference does having the living God make in all this? What difference does the living God make in my parenting struggles? in my addiction to social media, in my uncertainties and worries which are overwhelmingly, overwhelming me, or when I hear those lies of Satan whispering in my ear, Jake, you know you're a bit rubbish. You're a rubbish Christian. What makes you think you should be a minister of the gospel? The church looks a bit pathetic, doesn't it, Jake? David doesn't back his own competence or skills or his his skill of arguing when faced with the enemy. What does he do? He looks to the Lord. The focus is on his might and his goodness. And so in that, David provides us with an example of a faith-filled perspective. But even more than that, even more, David provides a picture of the faithful champion who fights on our behalf. So section three, the champion, verses 40 to 51. David, the young shepherd, stepped up to protect God's flock from the predator that was Goliath. Verse 40, David took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. David willingly received the taunts of his opponent. Goliath said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. It seemed unequal. And yet laying aside instruments of human might, David incapacitated the power of his enemy. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David's success rested entirely with God. I wonder if David reminds you of someone. David in this episode surely displays the victory of Christ. In his human flesh, Christ stepped forward as the shepherd, willing to lay down his life for the sheep. He had no armor or weapons. In fact, he was stripped of all his clothing and mocked by his enemies, and he was even killed. But by his innocent death, He freed his guilty people, releasing them from Satan's grip. So far from being defeated by his death, he wins the victory. Just listen to this from Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, 
Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Just as the fight between David and Goliath was over in the first round, with Goliath going down as easily as his own god Dagon in in the previous chapter, chapter 5, Dagon goes down and loses his head. So Jesus has disarmed the devil in a spectacular way. Paul says in Colossians 2 that having disarmed the powers and authority, Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So if you want an image to help you when you fear evil, or when you're tempted to go over to the other side because it seems stronger than Christ and his church, or if you're tempted to give in to that temptation again because it seems easier, why not picture David holding Goliath's head? That's what Christ has done to Satan's power. Which brings us to the final section, the conquest, verses 52 to 58. If David primarily prefigures Christ, um, the question is, who are we in the story? It's very easy to place ourselves in David's shoes and to picture ourselves. Um, but we're not, we're not David primarily in this story. Um, and in some ways, it's not very flattering because we're the ones who were once paralyzed in fear on the sideline. Yet, we're now those who follow our champion into enemy territory, sharing the plunder of his victory. We're the fans, uh, you can imagine, who, who run onto, onto the pitch to celebrate the win, joyfully singing um, our victor's praises, shouting his name in the streets. Satan no longer has a right to us because his accusations are empty because of Christ's victory. Sin no longer has the power to rule us because Christ our Lord has authority over all powers. And death can no longer hold us because Christ has gone before us, defeating death and leading us into his life, his victory forever. It is true, we still feel the effects of sin and evil in the world. And we still feel its pull in a world that's still shrouded by darkness. But the decisive victory has been won by Christ. And his light is dispelling darkness all over the world. Goliath is not coming back. Satan's power to accuse, to accuse us, his people, of God's people, of our guilt before God, has been disabled. He may still prowl around angrily, but Jesus has dealt him the fatal blow, and we are safe in Christ. So before we close, I wonder if you could bring to mind for a moment the thing that you're most frightened of as a Christian at the moment. Perhaps it's that you don't feel strong enough to keep going. Maybe you're afraid of being insulted or looked down upon for your faith. Perhaps you're worried you're not providing a, a great example for your children 
Maybe you're scared what will happen when your eyes close for that last time and you face the monster that is death itself. Perhaps you're afraid of evil and Satan himself. Well, when those fears come upon you, can you confront them with the following two questions arising from God's word to us today? In those moments, will you ask, what difference does having the living God make in all this? And what does Christ's victory mean for me right now? What difference does having the living God make in all this? And what does Christ's victory mean for me right now? Well, far better than a football-style chant, I wanted to close with the songs of victory in Revelation chapter 5. Um, in Revelation, the Apostle John is given a glimpse into the heavenly realities. He sees what we can't yet see, the full and final victory of Christ. And this is what he says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are, are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped.